Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. My name is Adam Christou and thanks for joining me on this week's episode. Lightmap is a program where we have conversations with game creators and developers. We ask them what it takes to make video games and interactive media and the challenges that they might face along the way. It's a guide to interesting new gameplay experiences. In every episode, you get to meet developers, artists, musicians, researchers, and more. Our guests on Lightmap uh, this week, we've got two of them, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Anders Kyle uh, Groningsada, and did I pronounce that right? I think I got it wrong. Uh, oh, you're, and, you're close enough. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and and Andre Reed uh, of Wield Interactive, um, who have put together a really awesome game called The Fertile Crescent, which has just popped into early access. Uh, we're going to have a chat with them about the Fertile Crescents just after this. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletto. And I'm Gianni De Giovanni. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying... Sorry, you're mad. Solo developed Mana Lords and indie city builder breaks sales and Steam records. Take Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. So the Fertile Crescent is a brand new RTS game that's just gone into early access from development team Wield Interactive. If you're a fan of RTS games like Age of Empires, you might immediately see some similarities on a visual level, but the Fertile Crescent actually draws from a variety of different elements, including 4X and city building games, to create a fascinating spin on classic, classic systems seen in the RTS genre. I'm joined now by Anders and Andre. I'm really excited to talk about the Fertile Crescent. I've uh, had a little bit of time to play around with the game, and I'm just kind of really excited about like a homegrown indie RTS title. Um, and so I guess the very first question is, where did this idea spring from? Um, why an RTS? And why an RTS set in the Bronze Age in the Middle East? Since I uh, kind of started thinking about this project uh, decades ago, since uh, probably was a kid, and uh, um, since I played the the first Age of Empires demo and saw someone play it over, over land party, it was uh, like really um, memories that that still stick. Uh, and uh, I just I've always loved RTS games. It's been my my favorite genre. And then uh, you know at at some point uh, the the genre was declared a little bit dead. By the some of the big publishers, there were uh, fewer successful RTS games. Um, but I, I've always uh, wanted to make one, so I, uh, I did. Um, I was a software engineer and, and worked on educational games uh, for about ten years before I uh, jumped into this. Uh, and also, uh, I have an uh, interest in uh, ancient history, uh, especially uh, like far back uh, even like uh, the stone age but up up until uh, the bronze ages uh, I, f- I find it a very interesting time period so uh, I kind of merge those two interests together so to speak 
Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned um, a background in educational games because when I think of like uh, historical RTS games like Age of Empires, I almost think about that sort of like we are doing an educational history game in its core. It's kind of teaching you about like yeah. different <laughs> historical factions, different wars that happened. So how did how did it lead you to the Fertile Crescent as a as a location and a place? Uh, first, it's uh, kind of. I would say that history has not uh, been shown much in, in movies or uh, games. Uh, I remember uh, Troy with uh, Brad Pitt. That was a really cool movie, one of the best fighting scenes. Um, and uh, that that movie took place in, in that area. But there's, there's not so, or at least when I started developing this game, there wasn't so many games uh, set in the Bronze Age specifically. Uh, there has been a, a few games since then being actually uh, about this era a bit more like uh, you have the new uh, Troy uh, uh, Total War uh, game uh, so th- there's a little bit but uh, I-, I still think uh, it's uh, a time uh, and place that we can uh, explore more because mm, I'm, I'm sort of interested in like when I when I think about like a time period I wonder how much research gets done to help you build like the bedrock of the basic design elements and and sort of mechanics that you're going to build your game from. Um, did you find that through the research process, you were like, ah, here's something that I can make into something really cool that will fit into this game um, that you think maybe probably wouldn't exist if you, you hadn't landed on the Fertile Crescent as a location? Yeah, 100%. So... Um, a lot of the game mechanics. So I, I had the, you know, I wanted to make an RTS. So there's, there's some basics that need to be there, like how you order villagers to, to chop wood and, and stuff like that. But, um, uh, actually, um, I didn't look so much, uh, to other games for what I wanted to make. I, uh, read history books and I was actually more inspired by the history books and how, uh, basically the rise and fall of civilizations. And uh, it, it kept coming back to um, uh, the, the kind of rise of agriculture when we started uh, cultivating food on a large scale and how the first uh, city-states uh, uh, came to be and also how they uh, totally collapsed at the end of the Bronze Age. And we don't really know why. We have all these theories. Can be like There's like all these different reasons. But uh, the interesting thing is uh, that was uh, one of the few times where um, trade was truly globalized, like it was a globalized world like we have today, and it totally collapsed. So uh, um, maybe we can learn something. <laughs> Not at all an ominous, like, ominous thought going into climate change in the next couple of decades. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I really like that idea of, um, you know, the tension of food, um, you know, being like such an important part of this game. Um, it sort of weaved itself into so many elements of, of how the game works. Um, I think the most important uh, one at the beginning is like the fertility of, of land and locations um, in terms of where you establish a village and, and how it grows and how it builds. Um, tell me a little bit about how that sort of came about and particularly as well, um, I guess, the automatic worker generation system that's sort of come about in this game. Because I think um, a staple of the RTS genre is trying to figure out how workers work within this system. And you've got like you sort of StarCraft type games where you kind of just build endless workers almost up to you've got like 40 or 50 and you just stick them on lots of mines. Then you've got other games where it's sort of like they sort of just kind of pile up after a while. Like I find with Age of Empires, I don't know what I'm doing with my workers after a certain point. So how did you approach all of that in this game? 
Yeah, so the automatic villager generation was part of our um, thought to streamline a few aspects of RTS games there. They can have a bit of a high learning curve, and there's there's lots of things to do. Um, and we we want game to be more about uh, making good choices. And uh, in almost all RTS games, uh, having more workers means you have more workers to gather resources. You have a better economy. So very often it doesn't make sense to not just keep me making villagers. But it's it's kind of like a muscle memory thing. And if you forget to make villagers or, you know, you have uh, 40 food but not 50 and then you have to wait until you can, you know, click that one button to, to get that villager, etc. But it's, it's uh, I don't know, it uh, didn't feel like a meaningful choice because it's something you always have to do no matter what. So we decided, okay, uh, let's just uh, make it automatic, but then tie it into some interesting mechanics. So, for example, uh, you know, a little bit uh, inspired by history that uh, if you have a surplus of food, you know, you have more uh, babies surviving, um, healthier population, so to speak, and uh, and your population can grow a little bit faster. Um, so it's it's both. Uh, uh, what our wish to streamline a bit and also uh, to tie it in with, with some of the historical aspects of the game that, that we're inspired by. Yeah, and I, I imagine likewise on the other end of it, starvation is not really a zone that you want to be in with your civilization. So it does seem that there's a lot of negative detriments to if you're not paying attention to your food on that end of the scale too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted, uh, because uh, in most art test games, you, you gather resources and then you build up an army, and then you can just sit there. Uh, there's no consequence of having a large army. So basically, the largest army will win often. Um, but of course, throughout history, having an army was expensive, and it came with a consequence. They have to be fed and paid. Um, so we wanted uh, that to be part of the game, that uh, food is something you always need to together because it's always yeah you always have to pay and feed people um so yeah it became an integral part of the game yeah because i feel like a lot of like if we're if we're gonna like boil down the essentials of the rts genre it feels like supply slash food is like one of those things that is 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 like a resource that is almost in all of them but what i like about the fertile crescent in particular is there is like a tension that feels a lot more um, kind of terrifying when I'm playing this game compared to say, um, you know, go back to Starcraft again. It's like, okay, I spawn more overlords. I'm just going to press that button. I'll be delayed a little bit on my next attack or my my build will kind of be thrown out slightly. Whereas here it's like um, when you start kind of having food fall apart, there's some real warning signs that start to kick in. Um, how did you go about that process of trying to make like loss of food feel meaningful while playing this game and what were some of the challenges in sort of designing that? Uh, so this the starvation mechanic, I would say, is the most uh, controversial aspect of the game because it's so harsh. And uh, a lot of the game is kind of developed very iteratively. So we've built it step by step very carefully and slowly over a long time. And there has been some feedback that, oh, I hate to just die, you know, there, I, I, there's no coming back, uh, even with the warning signs. Uh, but I think we do find that uh, more people than not do appreciate that it's harsh. And f- for the moment, that's why we, we're keeping it as it is. 
Um, so uh, that aspect is actually just been a lot of playtesting, and then uh, we we don't have too many arguments for um, changing it as a, as for now. We'll we'll see when um, more and more uh, players get their hands on the game if if people will complain. But so far, uh, uh, it's an aspect that people enjoy about the game. Mm. And it, it's really interesting because you've you've tapped into an area that I'm fascinated about, which is like how does a small indie team do balance and and change changes in systems in complex games such as an RTS where there are so many different sort of systemic layers at work, and then you're thinking about balance not just from like a a mechanical perspective of how easy is this to pick up and play or understand. Or how can I how can it be broken to then say multiplayer balance and then a horde mode balance as well? So you've got a couple of different gameplay modes here, and I'm wondering how has that process of playtesting gone so far, and how will it change now that you're in early access? Yeah, so uh, you know making games is is hard uh, already. So uh, uh, and making the RTS is. Uh, not an easy genre, uh, to be totally honest. Uh, as you say, there's a lot of systems working together. It's hard to balance. So we, our strategy was being really patient. We uh, we didn't focus on content until we felt ready. So we, for years and years and years, we only focused on the core gameplay loop just to make sure that it's fun, it's the pacing is right, uh, there's meaningful choice. Uh, there's not one particular strategy that always wins, etc. Uh, so it's just been like a really uh, slow uh, kind of grinding this core gameplay loop for a long time. I don't know how else I can explain it, but it, we've been really patient. And then because we're going to release into early access, we uh, we had to have some content. So we started, you know, uh, making the skirmish and horde mode, etc. And uh, now we're getting more and more confident that the core gameplay loop is it's good and people like it and it's fun and we still enjoy it ourselves playing multiplayer even after playing it for so long. So uh, now the focus is more on, on content, but we still have a lot of emphasis on making sure we keep the game as bug-free as we can and also tap into a lot of the suggestions that come from the community. So... We've always been uh, um, really uh, uh, trying to listen to our community and what what they want. Uh, but also at the same time, we have a a very strong vision about the game. So if if something doesn't really fit with that vision, we uh, we might filter it out. But uh, I would say eighty to ninety percent of the feedback we get, uh, we really carefully consider, and and most of it gets added to the game. I'm curious about that that sort of gameplay loop that you were describing. Did you have an aha moment in those first few years where you were kind of designing it and something just clicked and you were like, that's the thing that this needs to be about? Or was it a much more kind of a kind of slower process? <laughs> uh, I wish there were aha moments, but uh, I, I don't, I can't, may, maybe when we added multiplayer and I don't know if it was just fun to play multiplayer. Like that was a cool feature to have been able to implement because um, we thought that was going to be challenging. But uh, yeah, it was cool playing multiplayer. But I don't think there was any like mechanic that was an aha moment. I think it's just a very gradual uh, process where things get 
better and better over time. I, I would say every every single bug or every single feature I, I put in, I'm like, oh, this game is so much better than last update. It's going to be so good. Everyone's going to love this. And then we upload it. And the next day, I'm like, oh, man, no, this oh, it's not good enough. I, no, we have to do this. We have to fix this. We have to, like, there's always something that we want to add. So if there's any aha moments, they don't last for very long. It was actually an aha moment for me, I think, because I joined, uh, I guess you'd been working on it for like six months or, or three months or something before I came on. And all of these ideas were kind of still in your head a little bit. And then when, I, I forget, like if if it was through a conversation or if it was just me like experiencing the stuff that you'd put in already, where I was like, oh, wow, like the the food and the and the the soil fertility and like and everything kind of lined up in a way and I was like oh this is all like they all talk to each other, um, so that I had I definitely had an aha moment at some point <laughs> where I kind of got on board. I'm I'm kind of curious, Anders. Tell me a bit about like your work on on the project. Have you done much uh, kind of sound work for this particular project? And what were some of the challenges in 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 on your end? Well, RTS sound is hard, I think, because um, it's always like there's like how much detail do you want? Uh, how much do you want to like kind of zoom in? And we and, you know, we're coming out uh, in the wake of Age of Empires 4, which is very detailed and very like real and, and, and tangible in how it sounds. And you can zoom in and you can almost like hear the different villagers breathe as you like zoom in on them. And and we were we kind of didn't want that we were pretty uh i had i had a uh a lot of experience with age of empires one and two from when i was a kid and one of the things that kind of annoyed me with those games was that there's like there's too many sounds so everything has its own sound and you know and and the original design goal the sound wise for for cfc was to to kind of simplify that a little bit um, and I think we've kind of overshot, <laughs> I mean, meaning it's, is already too complicated in terms of what sounds it has. And so I think there's an argument for scaling some of that stuff back. Um, I, outside of that, I had, I had made a silly, uh, limitation for myself where I was going to design all of the sounds of villagers interacting on the map with a, like a specific synthesizer. So they're all done on that synthesizer and i'm not i'm not sure <laughs> it was uh i think there's room to improve there as well because it's interesting when the way you describe it it's almost like a process of 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 kind of abstracting what these sounds will be it's like it's more abstract than say i guess the literal approach of the most recent age of empires where you know everything sort of clangs or has heaviness or feels like the actual materials that are being interacted with um is there a freedom that comes with being like okay i'm going to find a cool synth sound to kind of represent you know these textural elements that these villages might make as opposed to like um i don't know getting some some knives out and smacking them against like kettles and stuff to kind of make the sounds of clashing um swords and and various other things uh i mean it's it's 100 percent self-indulgent uh, i'm i'm a big synth head and <laughs> so i just wanted an excuse to mess around with the synths and that, that kind of i mean i think it at least as an experiment it worked off it worked out um it's not yeah it's a because it, it's yeah it's all self-indulgence really that's i think that's the long and short of it one thing that that interests me was that there is multiplayer in this game 
Um, when I think about multiplayer systems um, and indie games, I tend to think that they can be a scary amount of work and code and development. And I'm kind of curious about what some of the trials were with with setting up multiplayer for a game like this and, and how it went. Because you, you mentioned it wasn't as hard as you thought it might be. Is, is, is that kind of how it ended up? Yeah, so... Uh, when I was into developing educational games, uh, one of the games I worked on was actually kind of like a 2D MMO for, for classroom use. It's it's still playable in, in Norway, um, has a fair bit of users. So I only implemented the client side for that game, but I worked with uh, you know the, the server programmers um, and the backend. So I had uh, some, some insight in, into how to do that. And uh, I just knew that we had to have multiplayer for this game because we just had this inch that um, uh, this or this uh, gut instinct that this game would be fun to play uh, against other players. And then we had a a community vote uh, early on uh, when we very early on in on, on itch.io. We had like 30 or 40 community members and we just had a vote, uh, should we focus on single player or multiplayer? And uh, I think multiplayer won by one vote or two votes or something. <laughs> and we were just like, okay, let's just run by it. And uh, we, we started uh, developing the multiplayer. I would say it took a two or three months to get it up. Um, but it did like very simple, didn't have team games or spectator mode or anything that we have now. But um, it was just, uh, if we could get that in early, uh, we knew we would be able to launch a multiplayer because uh, uh, I've seen it done the other way around where you develop the single player and then adding the multiplayer infrastructure on top of that can be a huge amount of work. Uh, but now... Uh, everything is uh, written from the ground up to be easily added to multiplayer. So, we, for example, a skirmish AI, which is only in single player now, uh, in 10 minutes, I was able to just mash up something just to, to test, and Anders was able to play against the skirmish AI, and I was able to spectate it because all the code is kind of there. Uh, of course, we can't just add it in because we need the, the UI to you know add the, the the computer, you know, set up the teams and all that stuff. So there's there's a little bit of uh, work around it, but just just setting up the basic is pretty quick because we have that infrastructure. That was always our goal. That that's really impressive, I have to say. And you know, I'm, it's interesting to hear about how like going with multiplayer is the main focus, or like on the bedrock of the game is has just made it so much easier for you in terms of being able to continue to add to that rather than so kind of. I guess translating a single player game into multiplayer after which which as you've described probably is a lot of work. So yeah, I think uh if you have something you can play with multiplayer, I think it's easier to uh make some single player content for that because you you have a game that's competitive you can play against someone. So there's already some uh challenge in the game and so when you uh, take it to single player what what you have to do which is of course not easy either then then we're going to the territory of adding a skirmish ai which is uh, i would say is uh much uh, more difficult than adding the multiplayer 
so uh, skirmish AI th uh, throughout this whole development was definitely what really scared me because uh, you know I don't know how many developers they had to to do just AI for StarCraft. I just like how many man hours they spent. I don't know, but it I just had the impression it was a really big task. So uh, and also I uh, know a lot of players don't want AI that cheats. So you can't just like give them double food or whatever. They they have to like kind of play like a real player. So uh, yeah, I think uh, as the single player was uh, in a way more daunting to implement than the multiplayer. Yeah, I was gonna say um, I wanted to ask you about that too because when I when I think of single player skirmish AI and RTS, I do feel like one of the first things that people gripe about is like when they just get infinite resources or half build time or whatever and that's how difficulty is created yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so i can imagine it's a real difficult challenge to kind of figure out how to script ai that plays like a person and uses a variety of different strategies that can't be exploited repeatedly by players or, or yeah. to cheat around yeah um, i imagine early access will be a process of kind of weeding out some of those moments too yeah but uh, I, uh, we have uh, an advantage in that uh, the the game, the map generation is pretty dynamic, and there's no preset maps. So what happens is uh, players can learn how to play a particular map, and then the AI at some point, uh, you know, knows the map so so well, and then and then you can surpass the AI by kind of learning the, the quirks of the map. But in the Frollo Crest and the maps, uh, it's not just a lump of trees there and a lump of trees here. It's it's all pretty spread. And with uh, the, the tile fertility, it's all kind of spread. Um, so the AI, uh, which I was happy about, actually does a pretty good job. And uh, uh, of course, the, our, our most pro players who played for a while, they, they can beat the AI uh, pretty easily because they they know some strategies that work well but actually <laughs> our biggest problem is that the ai is too good so uh i had to before release we had we we thought that was the case but we we haven't tested on enough new players unfortunately uh we focused on the good players because we thought that would be the issue right um, so I, I thought, okay, for beginner, we'll we'll do uh they produce villagers fifty percent slower. Uh, they don't attack with so many. They they never flee so when they attack. They just waste all their units. You know, like kind of quite a bit of handicaps. But the problem is they still make pretty good decisions. So for new players who don't really know how to play, maybe they they think it's Asian Empires and they just try to play it like another RTS and then and then they just starve and they die. So actually, uh, one of the main feedbacks so far is that uh, the AI is too good and we need to, to tone it down for beginners. A good problem to have, I think. Yes. <laughs> I was pretty um, surprised. I, I thought the AI would be a, a big issue, but it's... Uh, actually very few people complain that it's it's not good enough and and when they beat it they're, they're happy so for now uh the ai is doing a good job but of course we'll we have lots of ideas of uh for how to improve it mm. it's it's interesting when you describe the map system in this game because i think it only clicked to me when you were talking about the ai there then you know a lot of rts games traditionally you know you'll have build orders that are created 
specifically for a specific map. You'll have entire strategies that come out from that entire process of like what is happening on this one map. So when you randomize maps like that, it kind of changes the entire process of how you strategize in a game like this. It becomes less about having like a perfect optimized plan and build order and almost kind of more like approaching say like a roguelike run with say spelunky is a good example of like i kind of know how all these systems work and interplay with each other i've now got to really figure out what's around me and make it work to the best that i can which sort of takes me back to that sort of 4x sort of gameplay of like a civilization where you kind of get dumped into a a generated map and you have to kind of strategize except this isn't an rts which i find really fascinating to kind of see how that interplay comes out together um one other thing I wanted to ask you about was like when we talk about gamifying concepts in an RTS is, and this is particularly a thing that comes up in 4X games and any sort of like historical strategy game is like how you um, create a system that defines a civilization evolving over time. Um, and you've got a knowledge system in this game that sort of does that sort of thing. Um, so tell me a little bit about the knowledge system in the Fertile Crescent and how you ended up designing that. Our first experiment was having a totally flat technology tree you could access any technology right off the bat um, the idea was you can play however you want right you, any strategy uh, of course uh, totally flat doesn't work um, there's going to be some techs that are obviously much better to just do right away um, and also uh yeah, so so for different reasons, it, it makes sense to have a little bit of uh, you know like you have a, the the beginning ones and then you have more advanced ones. But so far we've only limited that to to two tires, so it's the starting ones, and then you make palace, and then you get the rest. So it's still pretty simple. So uh, one thing that I wanted to change is that in a lot of RTS games for new players. Um, all the techs are in different buildings and you have to learn, okay, that tech is in that building, that tech is in that building. So we do have uh, equipment in the furnace, but besides that, we wanted to have all the technologies in one place. So it's really easy to see what have I teched, what can I take, what can I not afford to take, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to like remember the six different buildings and, and look for the, the tech and see if I can afford it and remember what it costed, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's a little bit of like uh, part of the, the streamlining uh, process. And yeah, so one, streamlining, two, um, make it so there, it's more open how, how you play the game. So that's The Fertile Crescent by Wield Interactive. You can find out more information by checking them out on Steam. You can actually look up The Fertile Crescent there. You can find their game on Early Access, and there's even a link to their own Discord. So you can join The Fertile Crescent community um, and learn maybe some build strategies, how to play this game better, how not to starve. Um, you can also follow the team on at TFC underscore game underscore RTS on Twitter. Thank you again, Anders and Andre, for being part of Lightmap and sharing your project with us today. Cheers. Cheers. Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Lang, me, Adam Christou as well, plus Mitch Lowe is our senior producer and Gianni DiGiovanni is our executive producer. 
Thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifters 3 podcasts. You can find links and everything we talked about on our website, which is at sifter.com.au. Read about some other games that we've been playing and some of the guests that we've featured across our various podcasts. You can also join the Sifter community. If you enjoyed this, you can share your creativity, talk about the games that you're playing on our server. You can also laugh at my Final Fantasy XIV uh, glams and outfits, which I keep posting in our games channel. No one cares about them except for me. Uh, visit sifter.com.au forward slash discord to get there at sifter.com.au forward slash discord. You can share the show. Um, it is the first and only free thing that you can do to support us. Word of mouth is really important for indie podcasts like us. So let your friends know if you enjoyed listening to this show. Send them a link or rate this on your favorite podcast platform of choice. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us and see you on the next episode of Lightmap. Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Unicorn Overlord might have a strange name, but don't dismiss its tactical prowess. It uses a, a tactics mode, um, and which is similar to the Gambit system that was in Final Fantasy XII for your um, uh, your squad mates, and you can say, okay, well, you know, Hodrick, who's my legionnaire with the big shield, I want him to prioritize protecting the back row. They're going to take the most damage. If they take a physical hit, they're going to go down, but I need them to be protected. So you can get quite granular with this, and I reckon you can build some pretty wild builds that are <laughs> totally game-breaking, um, but it's kind of the fun of the tactical squad-based gameplay in Unicorn Overlord. Tune in to Drop Rate to find out why Unicorn Overlord might just be one of 2024's sleeper hits. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.